This episode of the Bookworm Podcast is brought to you by Headspace. Try all of Headspace free for 30 days by going to headspace.com slash bookworm. So I have to say, last week was a lot of fun, Mike. It was. It was great to uh, hang out with the Buleggs. There's uh, the, there's only a handful of times, it seems like, when Mike and I get a chance to actually be in the same room together. Last week was one of them, only we did something very fun, which was to put our entire families together for the first time. And <laughs> uh, that was very loud at times, <laughs> but also very fun. So it was, it was a good time. I'm glad you invited us up. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Thanks for coming. Uh, I think it was approximately 12 minutes for Adelaide and Hazel to become BFFs. It's true. It's true. It was a very, very quick, quick adjustment on their part, but it's a good time. It's good. I know that uh, one of the things that came from that is my, my oldest daughter, Emma, was inspired by your oldest, who I didn't know that Toby was such a game stats nerd. <laughs> and yeah. he he inspired Emma to come up with her own like game stats process but she doesn't own an iPad as Toby does and decided to do it all on pen and paper and I sent pictures of this to Mike but it's it's pretty stellar what she came up with <laughs> it's it's pretty cool it is yeah and uh for people who are curious uh Toby uses an app called Board Game Stats. And actually, I have it on my my phone too, and it's synced to the same library. So basically, whenever we play a game, he logs the statistics. And we've been playing cribbage a lot lately. So for example, you can put not just you know who won, although those sorts of things go into the stats for like, when you play a four-player game, you win so much percentage of the time. Right, and you get hundreds of games in there, and then you can get some some pretty crazy insights. Like uh, one of the pieces of metadata that he has for uh, my brother-in-law, Soren. He's like, "Hey, hey, Uncle Soren, did you know that when you use nails as pegs, you're undefeated?" <laughs> <laughs> so he logs all this stuff, and uh, obviously, like you have to create your own metadata, and it takes time to put that stuff in, which is why he's the one who actually logs it all. Uh, I probably would stick with it for a couple of days and then be like, this is too much work. But he logs every single game that we play, hundreds of them now. And uh, the results are some pretty crazy statistics, which he was kind of sharing while we were we were together. Yeah, it was a good time. I will say that there were a couple points when I noticed he was playing games with his siblings and then he would lose. And then he was always just a little bit slow to enter those stats. <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of the joke now is like whenever he loses <laughs> like hey put that one in the stats <laughs> he always super does fun. but super fun well we've also got some other follow-up we need to jump into but you've got a a very special thing coming up and you should talk about this now because i'm gonna join this and i think it's gonna be a good time because i could use this right now <laughs> sure so i have put together as part of my faith-based productivity um, course a long time ago, this idea of a life theme. And a life theme is basically like a personal mission statement. And over the years, I've talked about this and I've even put together like little uh, challenges and steps that you can use to kind of craft your own 
life theme. Because it's hard if you, everyone understands the idea of a personal mission statement, but it's hard to just sit down and be like, okay, now write it. Like, where do you even start? And uh, I'm a productivity nerd, so I've read all these these books and I've done all the exercises and I've kind of condensed down like the ones that have made the most impact for me into there's like five different steps here for creating your own life theme. And uh, it, it's not a, a secret, right? We actually, Rachel and I uh, recorded a intentional family episode on this uh, not too long ago. I'll put a link to that in the, the show notes for people who want like a overview of the five different steps, but you just kind of think through like, what are the the times in your life when you felt the most alive? And then I encourage people to like think bigger. So what would you do tomorrow if you couldn't fail? And then you start to like build out this picture of what your future life could look like in vivid detail. So where are you? Who's there with you? What are you doing? That sort of thing. And then from there, you think about what are the the core values that are guiding your life? Are those reflected in that that picture of your ideal future? And then you take all that stuff and you condense it down into a single sentence that encapsulates your reason for being. And that serves as a filter for deciding what you want to say yes to and what you should say no to. But it also serves as like once you understand the things that you're doing and how they connect to your life theme, it brings motivation. So you don't even have to change what you're doing. I think we kind of talked about this a little bit in the last book on motivation. Like what you're doing doesn't have to change, just your perspective about it does. So once you identify the why, like it brings meaning to everything that you do. There's a saying, don't follow your passion, but always bring it with you. That's what a life theme enables you to do. Um, So... I was encouraged in the faith-based productivity community to put together a cohort for this. And I've been a part of and helped lead different cohorts for different people and different things. Um, But I've never actually led one myself. So I wanted to do this. This is almost like a mini cohort. This is not like you invest 30 hours a week, like part-time YouTuber Academy, and you publish six videos and you figure out, you know, your whole niche and things like that. It's broken down into some pretty simple action steps. But I thought, those five steps could make a pretty cool like five-week cohort where we go through this together and uh, essentially what it'll be is a live call every Friday for five weeks starting April 28th where I'll present a little bit of information on like the steps and kind of walk through how to do it, do some Q&A, uh, and then basically whoever signs up for this, we're all going to go through this together. So you do it with a bunch of other people and you share your process along the, the progress along the way. You get live feedback and you can kind of tune this thing in, but you walk out of it basically with a personal mission statement. So what the heck do I charge for this? I have no idea, but these are like five group coaching (laughs) calls, which I think I'm pretty good at, you know, having done them previously. And so I'm going to put this at $97. I think that is actually pretty, pretty reasonable. Um, But I have no idea what to really expect from this one. I just want to start moving in this direction because I think this could be, this could be kind of cool. Um, So... I have a link, which I will put in the show notes if people want to sign up for this. All the video calls will be recorded. So if you miss one, you can catch up. But basically, just so you know, it's not an information thing. The real value of a cohort is that you don't just get the information in a video course like a lot of people do, and then you never go through it. You get out of it what you put into it, and then there's like public accountability as you go. So that's kind of the whole idea behind it. But yeah, starting uh, April 28th, five weeks in a row, we're going to be building or revising our 
our life themes together. And if you want to join us, there will be a link in the show notes. Would love to have you on board. Well, I know I'm planning to join this. Hopefully I'm able to make all of them. Uh, I know that, you know, as, as I was working through one of my follow-up action items, which I guess I can jump into as part of this, I was trying to work through something. I ended up having a long conversation about it with my wife on our way back from Wisconsin last week. But this whole content creation thing that I know you and I have done over time, like we've, I have done this a lot with Bookworm, obviously. We're at episode 168, which is nuts to me. But I've not really done much for like my writing and such in a very long time. And I started to play that three C's concept, like the choice connection competence piece. Uh, from our last book on that particular topic of content creation. And there's a couple of things that came out of that for me. One is like, I don't really have a clear like connection to both myself and other people on that particular one. Like, why is it that I'm doing this? Which I think comes back somewhat to this life theme concept, because I don't really have a set like here's Joe's mission in life. Like I have a lot of like, here's some, to use Mike's favorite term, short-term goals. Like here's what I'm doing over the next couple years to prepare the church for this particular technology feat. And here are the things that I'm trying to do on our homestead of sorts. So like, I know those things, but why? Like that's, that's the part that I think I tend to struggle with. So like when I walked through that three C's concept, I, I, identified that as a, a, a big pain point. So whenever you mentioned that you were going to do this cohort when we were together last week, it's like, yes, please. Where <laughs> is the place that I submit an email address? Because Mike, Mike needs my email address for this one, I'm sure. So, yep, yes. It's all going to take place in, I'm excited in about this uh, one. the faith-based productivity circle community. So, yeah. Super fun. Well, since I'm on the topic, I should, I suppose, do the other things. Because the action item that I'm talking to is the work about was to work through these three C's on three different situations. Some of my rationale for that was mostly to try to figure out, is this a viable thing to do? Is this baloney? Like that, that's, this, this is Joe's litmus test of, is this ridiculous or is it valid? And I think I can say it's valid because I, I think with this content creation piece and working through Mike's life theme thing and working on like some accountability stuff with my wife. Uh, that's, that's something that I think I'm, I'm, I have a pretty good jump start on right now. So that's one. Uh, another one was setting up lights for a good Friday. Now that sounds like a pretty lame thing, but our <laughs> church is doing a good Friday service this year. We've not historically done that. And the specific service requires some fairly advanced, I don't want to say advanced, but a lot of like lighting challenges with spotlights and zones and things that we don't normally do. And there are a bunch of reasons for that, but we decided we were going to do them this time. Well, I needed to like set aside some time to go like work on this and do some planning for it and try to get some ideas on how it could work. And for the life of me, I kept avoiding it over and over and over. And ultimately, I think it came down to basically a lack of choice on my part. I felt like it was something that was being thrust upon me that I didn't really support. So then it was like out of my hands. 
which then led me down the path of, okay, well, if that's out of my hands, how do I, how do I spin this mentally to make this my choice? And I think I found some ways to do that, like different ways to take advantage of what I was being asked to do, but then to put my own little flair on it. And that seemingly had a pretty big uh, effect on me because uh, once I figured that particular part out, it was done pretty quick. So there's something to be said there. Uh, and then the last one, which is really quite boring because I wanted to use it on something that was boring that I really, really don't like doing, and that was taxes because welcome to tax season in the United States. And really, like, I'm fully capable of getting everything together for taxes. I'm very capable of, um, and like realizing that I have a choice to do this, but again, didn't really connect with why on earth am I have to do this other than the government tells me I have to do this. I don't want to do this. Have, have I mentioned that I don't want to do this? And I'm picking up on that. <laughs> just, just through like changing like some of the choice stuff and the connection stuff of like this is a way to help us do xyz for some financial stuff uh that it ended up being something i was able to motivate myself to get started on i don't want to say that i used that to motivate me to do the whole thing just because it ended up happening over the span of a couple days but once it was started it was pretty easy to keep it going so it was mostly just to get the ball rolling on that one so at the end of the day, I think what I have realized is that if you are willing to go through the process and take the time to break down those three C's, it, it can work pretty well. What I also learned, though, is that it takes a little bit of time to determine what those potential pain points are. It's not something that's mm. always super obvious. And it can take a little while to get it figured out. And it feels like a waste of time. That's that's the potential pain point, at least for me, because it's like, okay, if I'm going to spend 20 minutes trying to figure out why I'm not doing this, why don't I just go do the thing instead? <laughs> Which is a weird spot to be, to, to be in. It's like, I, I would rather just get the thing done because it's going to take 10 minutes versus the 20 minutes to figure out why I don't want to do it. So like I, I had a couple things. I can't remember what they were. There was a couple things that I was debating using this on and I had gotten which one I had done the taxes one and realized how long it took me to figure that one out and then just decided I'm not taking the time to do that. I'm just going to go do it quick. So just the threat of trying to work through the three C's was enough to get me to go do the thing. So it was weird. That was a weird revelation on my part. <laughs> but I can say the three C's thing does seem to work. Cool, cool. Uh, I've got two action items. Make a list of the things that I value and craft my own credo. Both of these things, of course, live inside of Obsidian. And uh, I have started these and starting to make progress on them, but I don't think they're they're finished and I don't know when they will be. I do like having these as just kind of save notes and I keep adding things to them as I think of them. Sure. So I can share some examples here. Things I value, honesty, integrity, authenticity, time, discipline, commitment, personal growth, simplicity, uh, calm, which I put in parentheses, a lack of drama. <laughs> uh, and then these are kind of tied to the 
what I'm calling the faith-based productivity manifesto, but it's basically a personal manifesto, personal credo, whatever. Uh, do what's right, not what's easy, show up every day, progress, not perfection, things like that. Create, don't consume. I've talked about that. Just ship it, embrace constraints, connect the dots, trust the process. Don't be a jerk. <laughs> uh, follow your path, quality, then quantity. Be a river, not a reservoir. Uh, say what you mean and mean what you say. So I, I kind of like how this is this is shaping up, but uh, definitely not done yet. I do this uh, manifesto specifically. I want to end up taking all of these like short little sayings and then creating like a graphic for it. But uh, I don't know when I'll think that this is done enough to actually do that. <laughs> but that's uh, ultimately what I want the the end state of of this to be. Cool, cool. So I guess does that bring us to the fun part of the day? Yep, you can't avoid it any longer. Okay. I don't know that I'm actually avoiding it. I don't know. There's something about this. I'm kind of I'm yeah. Well, I'm you're not running into the discussion. <laughs> I'm not. I'm really not. Okay, let's 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 go. So, 12 Rules for Life, Jordan B. Peterson. I picked this book partially because it seems like it keeps showing up on lists every time I look up like potential books for bookworm and it just struck me that I need to pick a book for bookworm. So, if you know have one you want, put it in the chat. Uh, this one continued to show up on all the things and it's one that I know is very controversial in the sense that people are very split by Jordan B. Peterson. And having read this, I think I understand why and have lots of feelings about this that we'll go through. And it's one that I feel like I've wanted to read for quite a while just because it keeps showing up on so many different uh, arenas and yet I've been a little afraid to pick it just because I knew some of the drama around Jordan Peterson so at this point I'm kind of glad I finally got it in my hands and had a chance to go through it but uh, what were your initial thoughts on this one Mike before you started the process of reading <laughs> what turns out to be a very talk worthy book let me answer that by telling you a story. Okay. Uh, I used to travel fairly fairly often, every couple of months. And whenever I was in the airport, I always look at the books that people are reading. Not like reading over their shoulder, but I'm trying to, I, like they always just jump out to me. That That intrigues me. And a lot of times they're fiction and I have no interest in the romance novels. So whatever, I'll move on quickly. But if it's a biography or a business book or a personal development type book, I'm usually pretty intrigued. So I remember seeing 12 Rules for Life a long time ago. Huh, that's kind of interesting. What is that? And I looked at it and I immediately did not want to go anywhere near it ever again. Okay. <laughs> so when you picked this one, I was like, okay, fine. I guess I have to. Yep. Like I've never tried to talk you out of a book for Bookworm. Probably the closest one would have been Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. But just like that, that one, I had the same sort of feeling. I've heard people talk about, oh, this is a great book. I had absolutely no interest in it, did not want to go anywhere near it. There's plenty of other books I would rather read than that one. So that's probably like the closest thing where I would have been like, hey, Joe, you sure you want to do this one? Can we maybe pick something else? And I had the same feeling when you picked this one. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I know I've got a good one on my hands. <laughs> they're fun that way. <laughs> that is not a a quality judgment on the book itself. Uh, that's just my personal taste. And since you're asking about yeah. my first impression of the book, it was like, oh, I guess we have to. <laughs> yes, that you do. You have to do this, Mike. I'm forcing you into it. <laughs> well, I think the easiest way to do this is, you know, I, I wrote all 12 rules down in the notes. There's a handful of these I think are going to be very, very quick. And unless there's something I'm missing that you feel like you want to cover on these, uh, there's probably about four of these I think we'll spend most of our time on. Uh, but I think it's going to be at least somewhat helpful if we discuss all of them, at least somewhat. Is that fair? Let's do so, it. The beginning of it, however, starts with a forward and an overture. So there is a uh, a person, I don't have his name in front of me, that uh, wrote a forward for it, which is basically a how he met Jordan B. Peterson and how he really liked him. And then... The overture is written by Jordan Peterson himself, who basically is setting up why rules. And in this world, why do we need more rules? Which is basically his justification. Like his justification for that is just that there are some things that we need to follow that will make everything else go better. That that was kind of my <laughs> very brief summarization of what what I got out of that overture. Uh, but yeah, that's that's really all I've got on that part before we jump into rules. Anything strike you from those two pieces? Uh, no, just how long they were. Yes. <laughs> yeah, which is a pretty good uh, foreshadowing of this, what did we decide, 360-some page book? Yeah. Not a short one. Uh, so that said, let's jump into rule one which is stand up straight with your shoulders back. And I have lots and lots of handwritten notes on these uh, particular rules. Uh, I'm not going to share all of them, but this one starts off with a story about lobsters. That is not where I expected this book to start. Talking about lobsters and how there's basically hierarchies. You know, in the animal world, as is with crustaceans, there is hierarchy. And the moral of the story is by the time you get done with this particular rule in this chapter is that uh, if you stand up straight with your shoulders back, it essentially helps release certain chemicals in your brain to make you feel more confident. That's, that's the very, very basic understanding I have on that. That said, there's a lot more in this book or in this particular <laughs> chapter but that was that's the big overarching point here. Yeah. So the lobster story I actually thought was kind of cool at the beginning. And then I realized how these chapters and the book itself are put together and it lost some of its significance, shall we say? Because uh he jumps from there to something else to something else to something else and there's like seven or eight different jumps in each one of these chapters and every one of these jumps is a bit of a leap he's a good writer so it, it's a very smooth transition but after a while you start to just 
feel overwhelmed with all the different places that he's taken you. And he always ends these chapters by coming back to the name of the chapter itself. So kind of a poetic envelope thing going on here. Always comes back to, you know, stand up straight with your shoulders back. But I feel at this point, uh, just in the first chapter, that this is not for me. (laughs) Um, Kind of talked a little bit about this before we hit record. Uh, Very intellectual. And the arguments are linked together so carefully. He's basically creating like this patchwork quilt story of these different principles. And I feel like this is the type of person, not Jordan Peterson himself, but I feel like I, I, I have met people who are sort of in this vein, this ilk, right? And they're impossible to talk to because they know all these facts and they are convinced that because they've put together this, you know, those, those things from like the murder movies with all the different strings that tie together. They're always I on think a this whiteboard with like things written on the strings yep. and what they mean. Yeah. Yeah, so this is what people think of, the people who don't like PKMs and app, like the apps like Obsidian. They, they think, oh, there's a, the people who have all these different connections and they're going to sort through all these different connections. They're going to connect all these dots and it's going to magically open up the skies and they're going to see the truth. Like that's not how it works, but that's kind of the journey that he's taking you down. And very quickly, even in the first chapter, you know, the Mortimer Adler, How to Read a Book. This is supposed to be a conversation, right? And I'm supposed to be weighing these arguments that he's making and then responding. I feel like I stopped responding (laughs) because even just reading this book, it's like, well, he doesn't care what (laughs) I'm going to say. So, yeah, not a great setup for the the rest of the the book, I I would, would say. If you're going to go into it like we do, I guess, or I do for bookworm where it's like what are the nuggets here that i can extract because he's so carefully cherry picking certain things to weave this big web that it it feels like a fruitless exercise to try to dig any deeper on any one of them yeah we we talked about this beforehand a little bit uh, which is a little dangerous sometimes but i i've I've watched a number of Jordan B. Peterson's videos, his short form videos, uh, over the last maybe six months or so, which is partly why I was interested in reading his book. But at the same time, I know that a lot of his posts uh, and those of people who have debated him, because I I wanted to make sure I was understanding the other side of it, not just the cherry-picked segments he wanted us to see, but Anytime he is in a debate or a conversation with someone and there's any chance of getting him to question his current thought, you have to have a lot of data and a lot of debate background to get him to even question his current viewpoint. And if you do get him to question that, which is a challenge, he will very quickly in almost every scenario have some kind of rebuttal that slightly changes it off topic, it seems. Not completely, but somewhat just enough. And that's that's a little frustrating at times. That but, makes perfect sense to me based on like how he jumps from thing to thing here. Correct. Yeah. And there's there's a couple points 
I'm not seeing it quickly in my notes, but there's a couple times when he had a, a, a heading in the book and then it was like the rest of it was designed to try to defend that argument. And I got to the end of it. I was like, I don't, I don't feel like you defended that argument at all. You, just, you walked around it the whole time, but I, I don't feel like I'm actually buying your, your viewpoint here. Uh, and again, this rule number one is where he kind of sets the stage for that. This is where I realized that if he needs to set up background for something, that he will spend multiple pages setting up the background by for one sub point. And sometimes he doesn't always use it. There was a thing later on about black squirrels in the park, and they're not normally there. It's like, what, what's that got to do with anything? And from what I could tell, he never brought that one full round. Anyway, so rule number one, stand up straight with your shoulders back. Uh, you know, generally, you know, th this, this is a very specific thing he's recommending, which is, you know, stand up straight, shoulders back. And I actually, I wrote this down as an action item at the time. I don't know if I'm going to follow through on this. We can put it through. Uh, but just like I, I have my watch kind of tap my wrist every 15 minutes because I'm time blind on so many things it's like every time that goes off i just gotta make sure my posture's okay and that's it that's as far as it goes but as i've finished reading the book i'm not sure i'm gonna follow through on that just because i think there was maybe a flaw somewhere in this that i just didn't catch that said let's go on to rule number two because this is going to be way more fun than rule number one rule <laughs> number two treat yourself like someone you are responsible for helping at the surface, that, that concept, and th this is actually one of the things I really like, is if you were to read these 12 rules, just read the table of contents, like, you can get a lot of value just by reading the list. I, I, I just want to point that out. Like, There's a lot of good stuff here. We're already being nitpicky on this one, but there is some value in a lot of this. But treat yourself like someone you're responsible for helping. And he starts this off by talking about the difference between like chaos and order and the juxtaposition of those two needing each other, which very quickly takes him into what I was not prepared for, which then turned into a theme throughout a lot of the rest of the book, which was like a biblical, scriptural deep dive and a theological, theological deep dive. I was not prepared for that at all. And I knew that... I knew that Peterson was not against talking about the Bible and would sometimes use biblical references in his talks, but I did not know he would go this deep or for so long on this topic. <laughs> and there's a whole bunch of stuff here. I know you've been thinking about this one quite a bit, but at the uh, at the surface of this, he he's essentially going back to the Genesis story of Adam and Eve and the fall of man, to use the Christian terms, right? And using that scenario as the basis for this chaos and order conversation. What are your thoughts on this? I know you have a lot around this particular one. It was at this point that I know I started very seriously questioning his belief systems, <laughs> but uh, what are your thoughts on this one, Mike? He really wants to be seen as a deep brother. <laughs> Keep in mind, one of the things that I just shared that I value is simplicity, right? So 
will say when I read this and he did the deep dive into certain uh, scriptural passages from the, the Bible that kind of helped me understand why certain people that I know have referenced this book, uh, kind of like they like it uh, so long, I kind of question whether they actually read it. But uh, I think there is like a stigma type of person who you could say like, oh, well, obviously they like Jordan B. Peterson. And I think you and I are probably close to falling into that that circle or that that avatar. Right. Um, so I actually did not appreciate it at all. I thought it was interesting at the beginning. But I'm not surprised in the direction that he went. I also think therein lies the... Therein lies folly. <laughs> um, when it comes to Christianity, I think there is a danger of trying to make things too complicated. And I went to Bible college. Like I have a Bible college degree. I my whole brand is faith based productivity. So like on one level, it's cool that he's he's referencing this. However, this is the mistake I see a lot of people make: is they try to get so deep that they lose the forest through the trees (laughs) i think he even said at one point in here or maybe it was a different book but i thought he referenced a version of like there are different famous people um, who through they've been anti-christian in their life and the big problem they have is that well you christians don't act like you're christ Uh, the the actual gospel message is very simple and it's all based on (laughs) loving your neighbor as yourself so I don't know. I mean, let's uh, keep the main thing, the main thing here. And that's totally not what he's doing. It's not the, right. the, the, the way this book is, is structured. So I don't know. I mean, at this point, I was uh, honestly disconnecting from the, the book itself. Like Martin said in the, the chat, this, this feels like he's... Uh, showing us how clever he is. And um, it's almost like in the second chapter here with the deep dive into the scripture, it's like, oh yeah, see, I know about this area too, which doesn't surprise me from an academic, (laughs) but also I don't think is really a great perspective to have. That's just me personally based on the stuff that we read, but I'm thinking of like liminal thinking by Dave Gray specifically. We develop these bubbles of belief. And I feel like the approach that I see Jordan Peterson taking here is just whatever data point he finds, instead of questioning like, is that true? And going outside his bubble, oh, let's figure out a connection to that so it reinforces the bubble. (laughs) Or, as is the case on some of these, it's like he wants to bring it up simply to show how he can deconstruct it and show how it's not true. and. There's like in this particular section, he contradicts himself uh, in a couple ways and in primarily, you know, using the biblical references, you know, he, he makes a comment that God couldn't keep evil out of the garden, which is why the original sin happened. So God couldn't keep evil out. And then he says, why would God ever do such a thing? But then it wasn't... What is this? Three pages later. And the the underlying tone there with that, by the way, is like, you don't need to ask him because I already know. <laughs> yeah. 
But then, and that's that's just one particular case. He's got a number of these where he's like asking these questions, like God, why would you ever, why why wouldn't he do X Y Z? But then on page fifty two, he has a quote, but who would dare to question God? And I wrote my own note next to that, Jordan B. Peterson, apparently. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, okay. Let me address that specifically because that, like, you and I are kind of like, well, how could you possibly question? God, it takes a, an awful lot of um, assurance in, your, in yourself to do that. But that is still the wrong approach, even if you're just talking about other people's ideas. So it's take it outside the religious context. The approach here is still fundamentally broken, I feel. Sure. It's like, I know best and you know nothing. Yeah. I'm not sure that's how he intends it. I think that's the right tone. I think you're absolutely correct. That's the tone that it comes across as. I don't think that's the way he intends it, though. Yep. I, I know a lot of people take it as he intended it that way. Just and and I'm the only reason I'm saying that is because I have watched him debate people over video uh, a, a number of times, and he's generally not always. Sometimes he's like out to get somebody's argument and prove them they're prove that they're wrong and that he's right. But generally speaking, it's mostly that he's trying to get himself down to the fundamental truths and what is actually happen, happening. And I think that's what he's attempting to do just with flawed logic. But again, he's using an arena that you and I both know very well. So he, uh, the way he, he talks and the way that he presents his arguments, I have this picture because I have competed in, in Toastmasters and part of the comp- one of the competitions they have is this table topics, extemporaneous speaking, sure. where you go up to the front of the room, they give you the prompt or the topic, and then you have to uh, right there for three minutes talk in response to that. And one of the strategies that people use is when they give you the topic, you start talking about something else unrelated at the beginning. And sometimes if you're good, like you can wrap it back into that theme. Some people just don't care and they, they use it as an opportunity to just get on their soapbox and talk about whatever the heck they want. But I could totally see Jordan Peterson getting up there and like, okay, could you tell us why X, you know? And then he's like, well, let me tell you a story about Z. And then Z led to A. And then A led to B, which, by the way, as you can see, that ties to X. And by the time he's like taking you all these different places, the, the judges, they're, they're basing it on your ability to speak, right? So it's all like how you feel about what was said. It has nothing sure. to do with the actual content of the writing. Those are the people who win those competitions. Sure. Jordan B. Peterson would be great at Toastmasters. <laughs> well, let's go on to rule number three. Make friends with people who want the best for you. I don't have a whole lot to say on this one. He starts out with a story about his hometown. Uh, you know, people choose friends for a variety of reasons. Uh, he points out a few of the bad reasons, which is like to rescue them. You know, you, you, you have a friend and they have a bunch of problems and you feel like you can help them. So you become friends with them or you don't want to be challenged in your own belief systems or your own day-to-day choices. So you go be friends with people who are easy to be around and won't challenge you. Uh, but, you know, ultimately bad friends are easier to be around and the good ones will, you know, 
holds you to a higher standard. So pick good friends. <laughs> That's it in a nutshell. Uh, but he takes 50 pages to talk about the the people from his, his hometown who couldn't escape and right. committed suicide and, and stuff like that. He's a good writer. Like those stories are as entertaining as a story about suicide can be. Like he, he does a good job telling it but yeah you're, you're right you you can encapsulate it in a couple of sentences like you did uh, one of the things that did kind of stand out to me from from this is he says loyalty must be negotiated fairly and honestly i have been described by my wife as loyal to a fault <laughs> um, so that that one specifically gave me something to chew on no action item associated with that but at the very least Nothing else in this book. It encouraged me to not just blindly be loyal, but ask essentially what is the transaction that is happening here? Not that it's all based on like, well, what can you do for me? But I also think it's okay to kind of stand up for yourself maybe a little bit. So rule number four, because we'll need to keep moving here. Compare yourself to who you were yesterday, not to who someone else is today. I feel like this is a topic we've talked about a fair amount on bookworm. Like if you start comparing yourself to someone else, you're always going to find some somebody who's better. And that's really what he's saying here. He talks about being born in a small town. I was born in a small town. You know, that was pre days when everybody had social media. So it was a thing that people still knew everything you were up to. Like that's been something that's been in my life from the day I can remember. Uh, I know that a lot of people that's not the case, but in small town America, that's the way it is. Uh, even more so now with the social media internet world. Uh, but ultimately it's, you know, big fish, small pond at the beginning, big fish, you know, in the ocean, not so big, that scenario. But <laughs> if, if you compare yourself to who you were yesterday, ultimately what you're doing is you're focusing on your own actions and not letting somebody else's actions get in the way of what you're after. Again, that's that's really the distillation of what he's getting at with this one. Pay attention to yourself, not so much everybody else. Which I agree with. I mean, if you just take the rule itself, I feel like this one really resonates. But yep. again, the style, it's like, uh, do you really have to drag me through 50 pages of this? Right. I guess the thing that I can't quite wrap my head around, and maybe it's just because I'm not an academic, but the uh, the topic here, compare yourself to who you were yesterday, not to someone, not who someone else is today. Like that is essentially the whole idea of the gap versus the gain by Dan Sullivan. Have we talked about that on, on Bookworm? I feel like we have, but. Uh, maybe a cursory level. Okay, well, I'll just review it real briefly. There's a whole book about it, but imagine like three dots, you know, on a on a straight line going top to bottom, right? And the middle dot is like where you are. And you can compare yourself to somebody else who's more successful or another version of that is like where you want to be. And this is why I hate goals, right? <laughs> because you have this picture of your ideal future at the top. You look at where you are right now and you get discouraged. There's a gap there. You feel like, especially once you set a goal and you get there and the goalposts move on you, and now you have another goal that you have to uh, achieve, you feel like you're not making enough progress fast enough. It's never good enough. 
But if instead you look at where you are now and you base it off of habits, right? So you can see your progress and you compare that to where you started, that's the gain. You can see how much you've grown. And then you're like, oh, hey, actually this is working. And then you just continue to do it, right? You have motivation to, to keep going there. So that's essentially what he's saying here. But Dan Sullivan talks about that. And yeah, he's extrapolated it to an entire book at this point. But for years, he talked about this. This was like three pages. It was a simple concept (laughs) that he brought up in the midst of a whole bunch of other things. And it's so direct and it's so clear. And by the time you get done reading this chapter, your eyes are glossed over and you're like, I don't even know what I just heard, man, but it was good. (laughs) (laughs) uh, Me, you know, I'm asking myself at the end, like, who cares? What am I going to do about this? What impact has this had on me? And this one specifically, you know, because he ends it with that same phrase. I'm like, Dan Sullivan did this way better. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I know that, you know, in in today's world, it's easy to see how other people are doing things and how well they're doing with them. And it's easy to get into the comparison game with that. And, you know, to, to do the comparison thing at a very, very basic level can cause problems. It's okay to notice how well something else is done. Like there's, there's a fine line between viewing what other people are doing and using that as inspiration to do better yourself and watching something somebody else has done or is in the middle of doing and then saying, why can't I be like that? Like those are two different realms. And if we focus more on how am I doing as compared to how the rest of my stuff is doing? Am I, am I on the mission to do my thing or am I just trying to beat this other person? You know, the, the, the whole competition thing like that, that can get to be a problem. So like if you focus on your own thing and use the other as inspiration instead of comparison, I feel like that's the benefit in it. Uh, I, I think he would probably agree with this on that though. It would take a very long process of him talking about inattentional blindness, religion, uh, a slipped-in attack on atheism. I was not prepared for that one either. Uh, to get to the point where he says, pay attention to yourself. We had a, what was this, 38-page endeavor to get to that point. Yeah, he likes, yeah. He likes his meandering journeys. He sure does. <laughs> This episode of Bookworm is brought to you by Headspace. Last few years have taught us how important mental health is to our overall state of well-being. Stress, anxiety, burnout, these are all things that you can't afford to ignore. By the time you feel like you maybe should do something, it's often too late. You need to start pedaling before the hill, and that's where Headspace can help. Headspace helps improve your mental health through guided meditations, mindfulness practices, breathing and calming exercises, and so much more. Headspace combines scientifically proven benefits of mindfulness meditation with modern practices through their experienced meditation teachers, giving you customized, personalized approaches to help you navigate through all of life's moments, big and small. There's a wide range of teachers with diverse backgrounds and areas of expertise inside the app to ensure that there's a teacher and content that can help you, whether you're a first-timer or have been practicing mindfulness meditation for years. When you only have a few minutes to get in the right headspace, there are programs to do on the go when pressed for time. This is the thing that I love most about headspace. I do these short mindfulness meditations all the time whenever I start to feel a little bit tense. 
Headspace has helped me and more than 100 million people worldwide, and they can help you too. So listen up. You don't want to miss this. I've arranged something special, and for a limited time, all of you can try Headspace free for 30 days by going to headspace.com slash bookworm. Now, you won't find this offer anywhere else. You have to use my link, H-E-A-D-S-P-A-C-E dot com slash bookworm to unlock all of Headspace free for 30 days. This is not something they normally do. Headspace.com slash bookworm. All right, rule number five. And uh, I think you briefly mentioned this one when we were together last week. Do not let your children do anything that makes you dislike them. Okay, now let's move on. Like, that's great. (laughs) 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 This one is, uh, I, I don't have a lot written down from this, but... There, there is a quote that I wrote, which is, it's an art of responsibility. No, it is an act of responsibility to discipline a child. And I think that's very valuable. Like that's, that's, this is one of the sections where like, yes, 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 yes. Uh, it was also one of the longer ones as well. Though I have to admit, like it was hard at times to not skim some of this. Like, yeah, it's great stories. It's great things, but... I, I want to move on. Anyway, don't let your children do anything <laughs> that makes you dislike them. It's like on the surface, that sounds sounds awesome. I haven't really found anything that I in this particular one that I felt like was wrong. Uh, but it's a good good uh, charge to take responsibility for discipline for disciplining your child. Yeah, uh, this one feels like parenting advice, but. Also, like at this point in the book, I'm looking at it with a side eye. (laughs) So some of the stuff I feel in here is probably decent advice that he doesn't speak to directly. So it doesn't really have sort of impact that it it could have. I mean, I jotted down a few things from here, not like, oh, I'm going to change this. This is an action item sort of a thing, but I feel like there's a few nuggets of wisdom in here about not trying to be your kid's friend and how kids can be damaged by a lack of attention as much as by mental or physical abuse. It's kind of shocking to hear that, but I think I can, I can see that can't avoid being the bad guy, you know, kind of stuff like that. But I don't know. I didn't come to this book for parenting advice and I am skeptical of any parent who thinks that they can condense everything about parenting into even 12 rules. Like if this whole book was, uh, was written as here's everything you know about parenting. I still don't think I would trust it. (laughs) Uh, parenting is one of the most difficult things in the world to do. Um, partly because each kid is completely different. So the whole rules format doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. My personal opinion, you have to get the, the plan for each kid. You got to figure out who they are. And uh, I personally believe that uh, given to you for a reason. So you have what it takes to, to raise them right. But you can't just follow a formula. <laughs> and the more that I see, the, the, the I guess kind of longer I've been a parent, um, the more I've, I've seen people who have taken that approach. Uh, I know one, uh, one person specifically who was kind of a famous football player at one point I'm not going to share their name, but they had a bunch of kids and was very rigid, um, 
And on the, the surface, you know, it looks like they've got a great family. The kids are real well behaved. And then he ends up going crazy and the family falls apart. <laughs> and then you kind of see, like, if you watch long enough, you know, that it wasn't exactly what it seemed. I don't want to pretend like I've got it all together. I hope I've got a strong foundation and I'm going to do whatever I can to build it. But uh, it's not going to be condensed into uh, a rule or rules. Sure. Well, let's let's keep moving here because I don't want to get into the parenting advice realm at the moment. But <laughs> uh, rule number six, set your house in perfect order before you criticize the world. The emphasis on that is mine, uh, on perfect. The reason I uh, put the emphasis there is because he, he talks about how things fall apart, things break, things don't always stay in perfect order. And before you start trying to worry about someone else's world, you need to make sure you are right in that same realm. Or to use his word, it needs to be in perfect order before you start worrying about somebody else's territory. Now, this it, it's interesting to me, you know, one of his rules later is going to be about being precise in your words and your speech. But it's interesting to me that if that's the case, he's being very precise with his choice of words, knowing how he operates. He's usually quite precise with what he's saying, which meant that me coming into this, that's probably a little bit of the weird bias that I had coming into this. Like I'm taking every word as if he means it and didn't have some unintended bias behind it. So he's saying, put it in perfect order before you criticize the world. Now here's the catch. (laughs) When is it ever in perfect order? Whether that's relationally, cleanliness, you name it, you know, perfect politically, that doesn't exist. So if that's the case, when is the point at which you would criticize the world? Never. Mm-hmm. So it, based on that terminology and the debate that he took us through in this, it led me to believe that there is never a point at which you would be willing to criticize the world because your stuff would never be put together perfectly. So why is he criticizing so many things in the world? Is that the point? I mean, is that maybe I haven't watched I haven't watched any of his other videos or followed anything else that he does online, so I can't compare. But you know, if you're looking at this this book, I mean, that would be a fairly effective point to make. Is like, hey, don't worry about what other people are doing; just worry about yourself. I mean, yep. <laughs> again. Jesus said that. Yep. <laughs> Worry about the log in your own eye before you dig out the speck in your your brother's eye. Correct. That's kind of what the the title implies here. The things I jotted down from this chapter, there were only a couple of points. Right. They all relate to not finding somebody else to blame and cleaning up your own life, stop doing what you know is wrong, all that kind of that kind of stuff. Self-determination, personal responsibility, those sorts of things. Which at this, I don't know, like we're, we're, we're repeating the same model, obviously every single chapter, we're not speaking real strongly directly to any one of these things, but let's just say he did, right? Self, self-determination, you are in charge of your own future. We talk about that a lot on this, this podcast, but let's say that's what rule six is all about. 
is this transformational for people? Like 5 million copies sold. So it says on the cover of mine anyways. Right. Yeah, mine too. So I'm kind of blown away that people are encountering this idea and thinking that this is brand new. <laughs> Maybe the way he describes it using all the fancy words is new, but 5 million copies of what exactly? <laughs> I mean, at this point, it feels like a bunch of fluff. I don't know. I mean, Martin made a point in the the chat. This might be one of the few books where the Blinkist version would be better. Yep. I pity the person who has to try to make the Blinkist version of this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How do you consolidate yeah. some of the things that that he's trying to say here? Yep. And if you did that, I feel like you get surface level. You know, it feels like a a, a thousand word blog post that was turned into I don't know ninety thousand words in a book, but sort of chat GPT style where it's added a whole bunch of volume, but there's not a whole lot of uh, signal here. There's not a whole lot of boosting of these ideas. And again, maybe it's just because I'm not the right person for this and it doesn't really click with me, but. Silent says that the Blinkist version is one minute long. <laughs> It's just the 12 rules. That's it. Also, yeah, I suppose if you took your time and just said them with, you know, convic conviction, you could get it to be a minute long. I do know, you know, and he mentions this in the overture at the beginning, that this started out as a list of things to live by on Quora. He was answering a question on Quora. And then he had a publisher reach out to him and want to make it into a book. And then it slowly got whittled down to these 12 rules. So it did start out as a blog post of sorts that then got expanded into 300 plus pages. So you're not wrong in that. I just think I should probably yeah. go look up the Quora answer and read that and be done. Okay, let's go on to rule number seven, which is pursue what is meaningful, not what is expedient. And the, the premise here goes that we tend to believe the concept, life is short, so live it up. That's like the short-sighted view of life. Whereas if you want to have a meaningful life, it always requires sacrifice of some kind. So then the rest of the chapter is basically showing us uh, the reasons behind sacrifice and why sacrifice is important. He gets into another biblical stance here, basically saying that God is dead. Like he has a whole, I forget how many pages it was, like an eight or nine page thing trying to prove that God is dead in here. Mm. And I... I was usually pretty good at following his arguments, but that one I couldn't follow. Maybe you figured it out, but I couldn't even follow that. So in my notes, I just wrote that I couldn't figure out his argument. He's just rambling. So <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, that well, one's... one of the things I, I jotted down is that he, he says when atheists argue Christ, against Christian creationism, they are doing so using truths established over centuries of Christian culture. 
So I kind of had the opposite conclusion. He was saying that atheists believe in something. They just don't really even realize what they believe in necessarily. I must have missed that part then. I don't know. I mean, at this point, it's it's easy to lose the the plot. Yeah, yeah. Because (laughs) he's also where that stories to get to one point. Yep. This is also where that quote that I mentioned came in. I, I found it in my notes. Christians have never practiced the actions Jesus prescribed them. That was, I don't know how to pronounce this philosopher's name. Nietzsche. Oh yeah, Nietzsche. Yeah. So, I like the general idea. You know. Mm-hmm. You should, uh, Dave Ramsey says it a different way, you know, pay now, play later mm-hmm. or play now, pay later. That's essentially what he's saying. Work is a delay of gratification. You sacrifice now to, to gain later, but don't need, uh, all the meandering to land on that, <laughs> in my opinion. Yes. So let's go on to rule number eight. Tell the truth or at least... Don't lie. There you go. Tell the truth. I, I, I literally wrote down one thing. The truth may sometimes be hard, but it's always strengthening. Like that was the one point I got from this. So I don't really have anything more on that one because it's pretty self-explanatory. Don't tell lies. I, I hate this chapter. <laughs> really? Okay. I mean, just me like the, that, that whole title... Uh, kind of encapsulates, I feel like the whole academic mindset around what is truth, right? Yep. <laughs> so tell the truth. I feel like that is a a good rule to live by, uh, very black and white. And then he adds the, or at least don't lie. So don't say something you know is not true, right? Which opens up everything else to interpretation. And I, I don't know, on one level, I, I get that, but I also don't like the the whole door that opens up. Um, yeah, there's not a whole lot of notes I have in the, the next chapter either. Black to your your comment. Yep. Uh, there, I don't know. There's some interesting stuff in here, I guess, where he talks about the two different types of sin, and this doesn't have to be a religious context. But basically, if you're talking about right and wrong, there is wrong or sin of commission where you actually do something that you know is wrong. Or also there is the sin of omission where you let something bad happen when you could do something to, to stop it. And I feel like there was a, maybe it was a Gladwell book blink. That we talked about, about that a little bit about how people will tend to just kind of like not want to get involved. And I feel like that's the, the wrong uh, uh, approach here but also just like the underlying tone with all of this feels shaky. Yeah. <laughs> feel like if that was exactly what you said, that would be a lot stronger, a lot more clear and have a lot more impact. Like don't just sit on the sideline when something bad is happening, do something to stop it. So just tell the truth. Yeah. <laughs> Do what's right, not what's easy. You know, that's yeah. something my pastor says all the time. I mentioned that in my manifesto sort of a thing. Like, that sounds better to me than tell the truth or at least don't lie. Yeah. All right, let's go to rule number nine, where I have one word written as a note. Rule number nine is assume that the person you are listening to might know something you don't. 
And the word that I wrote down as a note for this entire chapter was listen. I, I feel like that's what you need to know. Listen. When you're in conversation, listen. Because the other person may have things that they need to say, and by me speaking, to use his terminology, he may inflict his own ideology on the other person. Now, granted, yeah. he was speaking about that from a clinical psychologist viewpoint to a patient, so he's not always trying to put his own thoughts and ideas into the person's mind. Having seen how he operates, that is absolutely what he tries to do, is put his ideologies into your brain. So he's on the opposite end of the spectrum whenever I've seen him in that scenario, but... <laughs> This one is basically just well, listen. I mean, I can't, I can't, because I haven't looked at anything else. But that's probably a benefit when it comes to some of these books. Is like I can't judge yeah. that, like authenticity of the the author. And I agree with the the things he's saying in this this chapter. Some of the things that he's saying, you know, that it's amazing what people will tell you if you listen. You can be pretty smart if you just shut up. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, learn to look at arguments from others' perspective. That's good advice, but again, like liminal thinking speaks to this a whole lot better, I feel. And I I probably do this every single episode where there is a chapter in a book where I'm like, there's a whole book that speaks to this better. So I recognize that's kind of my bias here, but it's um, also like, I kind of can't get over the fact that there's 370 pages here and he really doesn't say anything real strongly. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, is what it is. Which I think that's a perfect place to start talking about rule number 10. Be precise in your speech. Now, you, you made a comment that it might be better having not seen his work online because then you maybe don't have our tainted view of that. Uh, and I, I kind of struggled with that, you know, having seen so much of his stuff and like, as I'm reading it, I can hear his voice reading it. And there's, there's definitely like some bias and stuff that comes in. Cause like some of the things I know he said, I'm like, yes, that's you're spot on with that. The way you're coming about this is probably not all that great, but this be precise in your speech. That's actually a, a word that he likes to use in his debates. Precise. Like whenever somebody brings something up, uh, you know, one of them that I've seen him do quite a bit is the the equality and pay process between mm -hmm. men and women. He he likes to debate that one quite a bit, and whenever it comes up, he's always wanting to know. Well, be precise about the arenas you're talking about. He's like everybody wants to talk about sea level positions, but what about? the garbage collectors who are 99% male. Like those are the things that he'll bring up, but he always wants people to be precise. He likes to use that word, which is fascinating given how imprecise he's been on so many topics so far because he's like dancing around things instead of pinpointing it. He wants people to pinpoint it, but then he doesn't himself. That's the type of thing that gets to be kind of frustrating for me. That part aside, like, take Jordan Peterson out of that equation, be precise in your speech, that concept I think can be very helpful 
if you were to do that, and, and one of the things I wrote down, just wrote, again, one thing at the end of this, it's like ultimately what I was coming to in reading this was like, there's so much that has to do with chaos in the world, like disorder. Being precise helps you define the problem very clearly, which then makes the answer easier to come to. So that precision in defining it, the precision in the words you use to define that problem, that's the important part in that process. So that part of this, I could definitely get on board with. Well, let me defend him a little bit because I think it kind of it depends on how you define precise. I think he actually is pretty precise in his words and in his communication because you have to be to jump from this thing to that thing to that thing to that thing to that thing and then back to the beginning again. If you're not precise in your words, that is just going to leave you feeling motion sick in addition to the feeling I have where like you didn't really tell me anything, bro. Right. <laughs> so I feel like he is precise, but he's trying to connect all these different domains going all the way back, like 12 rules for life. And he starts with a story about the lobsters. Why? At some point you kind of can't figure out why he's selecting any single one of these stories and weaving them together which kind of comes back, I was sort of saving this for like the style and rating, but who is this book for? 12 Rules for Life. It, are people just like getting to a certain point in their life and I've never read a book. I wonder which one I should pick up. Oh, this one will tell me everything I need to know about life. It, that's the only person I can <laughs> think of with like this sort of thing is like, hey man, this is really great. If you've read anything else, this is like, why? <laughs> 370, 370 pages of why. Yep. <laughs> Those are hours of my life I won't get back. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's go to rule number 11. Do not bother children when they are skateboarding. This one was just kind of odd for me. I think I understand his process here. It, it let, let me attempt to explain this and then you can point out where I'm wrong because I feel like you're better at grasping this type of stuff. He talks about skateboarding and based on what I'm reading here, skateboarding can be dangerous and that danger has lessons that come with it. Like you learn how to deal with hardships and trying to overcome like difficulties in pulling off tricks or skating down a half pipe and such. So like you learn how to be tougher in doing that. And if you don't do that, or like if you prevent kids from being able to learn those lessons, they end up becoming a weak adult or a weaker person later on in life. And then they can end up having very flawed views of the world and be a detriment to society. I think that's the logic here. Now, where am I wrong on that? Because that it just felt like <laughs> a weird debate to me. Well, I can tell you, like it, it's kind of jarring to me all the different places he tries to take you in each one of these chapters. But I feel like at the beginning of this, he's actually making a pretty solid point, which is that we generally are risk adverse, right? We want to be safe especially if you're a parent, you want your kids to be safe. However, to really 
protect your kids and keep them safe, you need to expose them to a certain amount of risk so that they develop competence because with skateboarding specifically, competence is what makes that dangerous activity safe. If you don't have the competence and you try to even step on a skateboard, you're going to fall on your butt, break your neck. <laughs> but if you know what you're doing, then trying to go down, grind down the, the hand railing isn't really all that, that dangerous because you know what you're doing. How do you know what you're doing? You expose yourself to different levels of risk and you develop the skill to be able to, to do that. Then he gets into hierarchies and then he talks about how the hierarchies aren't all men's fault. And <laughs> I mean, this is stuff that he says explicitly and just like the way that he says it, I'm like, dude, why? Uh, I don't know. I, I feel like there is a certain type of person who can't articulate their own arguments and would totally latch on to specific statements from this chapter and be like, see, see, I knew it. And just go read Jordan B. Peterson's book because I'm too lazy to articulate this myself and decide what I actually think. Yep. <laughs> but uh, that's not me. <laughs> so <laughs> this did nothing for me. <laughs> it It's a thing, like I've, I've never been one who's like overly protective of my kids. Like I regularly let them make what I would consider bad choices in safe ways. You want to climb that tree? Sure, go for it. That particular tree has a whole bunch of dead branches, and I know it's very likely you're going to fall, but those branches are only like four feet off the ground. So you're going to fall, but you might break an arm, break you know something like that. You're not going to die from that. So I'll let them take that risk so that they become better at, you know, stability, balance, et cetera, et cetera. So then they are safe whenever I'm not there. They don't need me there all the time to, you know, not die. So I'm comfortable with my kids in pretty risky situations because I know that they can handle themselves in those situations, but it's because they've been allowed to be tested at small scales. So I get that. Mm. I don't know that that particular concept was one that I got from this. So I'm grateful you brought it up. <laughs> well, I'm not sure even that's the main point that he's making Maybe. here, to be honest. Yeah. He spends quite a bit of time attacking these hierarchies and mentions that hierarchies can exist for a lot of different reasons. Science can be biased by the interests of power. So he gets you to like question everything that you believe here. Uh, he does make one solid point in this chapter, I feel, which is worth calling out, that uh, a lot of the resentment around different groups of people, which he talks about resentment, there's two options for that, being taken advantage of or refusal to accept responsibility and grow up. So he's very direct in his like confrontation of this, this mindset. But group identity can be fractioned down to the individual and I, I think I like that statement because we all have these groups that we identify with, but really people are way more complex than a group identity. And if you keep digging deeper, like the, the pool of shared characteristics keeps getting smaller and smaller until you are the only person left. And then that ties into the whole idea of like the self-determination and taking responsibility for your, your future. 
right? It doesn't matter if, and I'm not saying like bad stuff happens to people that it's, it's your fault. Like maybe it's not your fault. Maybe you were completely wronged by someone, some way, somehow. But as long as you stay in that place where well, there's nothing I can do about this because this person put me or these people put me in this situation, then you're powerless to get out of that. The minute that you're like, well, it may not be my fault, but I'm going to be the answer. I'm going to find the solution because I have the ability and the power within me to, to do that. Like that's when your future starts to change. So I think that's a really powerful idea that again, he's not really speaking to. I'm connecting two ideas from two totally different chapters in a very different way than he does. And with 60 less steps in between. <laughs> yes. Not so much a meandering journey, which is what we get in rule 12. It's a fun little segue. Uh, rule number 12, pet a cat when you encounter one on the street. And this one starts exactly the way you would expect by talking about dogs <laughs> for the next five and a half pages because I wrote it down that he specifically talked about a dog for five and a half pages at the beginning of a chapter talking about cats in order to show that he's not just going to talk about cats and that he also likes dogs. Yeah, this what? it's it's really weird. You're right though. He talks he tells a story about his family dog. Yep. And then basically four pages later, you know, he says, I did this just so that you people couldn't say I was biased. Yep. <laughs> like he calls out the reader for that. And it's like, why? Yep. So now we're in an <laughs> argument and you're trying to defend yourself against me when a book is supposed yeah. to be written for those who are on your side. What? I mean, I'm a dog I'm a dog person anyways, so like I probably am the 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 person that that group like who he's writing that for, but I didn't care. Right. And I feel like the people who are going to pick up a book in order to actually get something out of it aren't going to care. <laughs> the bookworm listeners are not going to care because they've developed the skill to like pick through the crap and find the gold nuggets. Yes. that they can apply to their own life and he's just assuming that you're stupid and you can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Here's my summarization of the actual point of the chapter, uh, which is that, uh, and this is me being a dog person who also has cats, outdoor cats. So take that however you would like. Uh, basically, if you're on a street, you're walking on the sidewalk and a cat comes up to you, that's a pretty rare occurrence. Cats wouldn't normally do that. So take advantage of the opportunity and pet the cat when it's there. So take advantage of good things when they come. That's the way I took this chapter. That could very well be the point he was trying to make, but that's not at all what I... I mean, I only jotted down a couple things from here, but it had nothing to do with that. I really have no idea. Yeah, how'd you take it? Because this, this is the problem with this style of book, right? Yeah, I really have no idea what... what uh, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But the three <laughs> things I jotted down is that being requires limitations. When you love someone, it's not despite their limitations, it's because of them. And he also mentioned that the parts of your brain that generate anxiety are more interested that there is a plan than in the details of the plan. I don't understand really, uh, having finished the book, how those wrap back into <laughs> rule number 12 anymore. Yep. But uh, those were my my couple takeaways. So the moral of the story is we're not real sure what rule 12 is about. <laughs> I'm joking. Uh, but it was a weird spot for this to end. He does have like a postlude of sorts, but 
I wrote nothing down because nothing about it struck me. So unless there's something there you want to throw in. Well, I jotted on two things from the coda, which actually that's where I think he tells the pretty emotional story about his daughter mm. and all the health trouble that yep. she's had, which makes him feel much more human, much more relatable. Um, at that point, I'm starting to not quite get so angry at him and start to feel sorry for him. So Coda does what it intends to do probably um, in terms of generating like empathy and sympathy for the the author. But the two things I jotted down, which really have n- nothing to do with the, the story, uh, consider how you may be wrong, even if you won't like the answer, and continue asking questions. I think those are two great principles, and I don't think that was the prevalent theme throughout the book. Uh, it's kind of weird how it ended that way. And again, I feel like this is probably just the message getting lost, not in translation, but just in the volume. Like it, it gets watered down as he makes all these different connections and pieces together, all this intricate stuff, like the actual story he's trying to tell and the points that he's trying to make. Too, he's too smart for his own good. Um, at least in terms, I think, of the bookworm audience engaging with this book and being able to understand the arguments from a how to read a book perspective and asking, how do I apply this to my life? And really like, what, what was the benefit of, of reading this? I can think of lots of other books which speak to lots of these other like random topics that he kind of touches on that I would point people to instead. Maybe that's getting into style and rating. So I'll stop there, but maybe it's just like the whole broad approach of like, these are the 12 things you need to know for your entire life. That's not exactly what he's saying with the title, but kind of, so I don't know. Okay. Well, before we go style and rating and all the fun things, uh, action items, I have two down here. One of them I have mentioned, which was checking my posture, stand up straight. (laughs) Maybe uh, when I'm tapped on the wrist. The second one, uh, this was more general. It didn't come from any specific place in the book. Uh, And I I just wrote down, say yes more to my kids. Say yes to my kids more often, I guess is the cleaner way to say that. Uh, Grammar, good, sometimes. And that primarily comes from the idea of, you know, as I was reading this, uh, obviously the, the rule five about children and then don't bother children. Like obviously those two kind of come into play here, but it was more general across the book. Just that I tend to say no by default in some situations, primarily when I get home from work, like I usually get asked to do different things or play certain games and such. And it's like, I've got things I've got to get done. No, I don't. I can wait and play with the kids. <laughs> when I get home. So I know that that time will not always be there. So I need to say yes more to my kids. So I've got those two from this. So I've at least got that from this one. How about you? I do not have any action items. I kind of guessed that. (laughs) My action item is to never pick up this book again. All right. Well, then let's go to style and rating. I think it's a weird position to be in to say that Jordan B. Peterson is a good writer. 
but not necessarily a good book putter togetherer in that I think he's really good at telling his stories and getting his point across in a subsection level. Like when he's making a specific point within a chapter, like over that page, I feel like he does a really good job of putting that one little piece together. When he goes to putting those sections together within the chapter, I, I very regularly got lost because I think he was putting together, like he was building the foundation for his arguments in order to prove the rule that he's setting out to prove. But sometimes I just got so spun around that I got lost on some things. Like I mentioned this one earlier, there was one section where he was talking about his wife going out for a walk and they saw a bunch of black squirrels in the negative 40 degree weather out in a park and thought that was really weird because they would never be out there hibernating. But then he never really tied that one off and just kind of left it. At least not that I caught anyway. Like, why are we talking about this? Like, there was a handful of those. Like, I don't even understand what you're getting at here. Maybe my brain's just not smart enough to handle that at the moment, but that was the way I took it. And so I feel like he's good at writing his stories. Putting the whole thing together is a challenge to follow with him. I'm not entirely certain why this is 12 rules for life other than just a, it almost feels like a money grab of sorts. Like he's really good at laying out debates. He's really good at, you know, putting these arguments together and saying lots of words around them. Really good at, you know, driving a lot of attention. People watch him because he's kind of, you know, a wild card. Sometimes you never really know what he's going to say. And he even has a point in the book, you know, don't hold back, say what you think and, you know, let the consequences lie where they may. So he does have kind of that mindset. Uh, so as far as like, would I recommend this or not? From a Christian viewpoint, I have a lot of people I don't want to read this because I don't think they're going to catch some of the flaws in biblical knowledge here. So like that one, I, I don't quite follow. <laughs> Good point, Martin, about squirrels not hibernating. Uh, the, the thing that, I know when it comes to like, would I recommend this or not? Like, if you don't have a solid standing on some of these topics, I, I don't think you should touch this because you're going to have to be in a challenge mode trying to make sure that you actually believe what he's saying or disagreeing with what he's saying and be able to articulate that. So you have to be pretty grounded in your ideas on those subjects before you're willing to take on Jordan B. Peterson. That's primarily because he's well-studied and he does lay out his arguments very well. So if you're going to pick it up, please be in that position. So I am not going to tell you that you absolutely should read this like we have with other books. As far as how to rate it, that's a struggle for me because there's a lot of these that I'm like, this, this idea, if I just read the table of contents, yeah, I can get on board with pretty much all of these uh, depending on interpretation. But knowing that there's a lot of things that I, I got value out of this and yet like completely lost on this as far as a rating goes, I think I'm going to put it at a 4.0 just because I think there is some value here on a surface level. I don't think I want people to deep dive this too far 
So I'm not going to go above that just because of the struggles there. Uh, not to mention the borderline heresy at times. So be careful with this one if you're going to read it. Personally, there's stuff here that I got a lot of value out of just having read it, even just from a motivational stance on a minor level. So that's helpful, but I'm not going to go beyond that. All right. Well, as I have kind of alluded to throughout this entire recording, I did not enjoy this book and I would not recommend anyone read this. I feel like this is a lazy book recommendation. Uh, if you follow along with Bookworm at all, and you've listened to even 10 different episodes, you have a breadth of knowledge that is going to make this a very difficult read for you. <laughs> if this is the one nonfiction book you have ever read, it probably is entertaining. And you're right, there are certain things in here that can provide a lot of value. However, I would argue the way that he presents them, they won't. You have to dig deeper than uh, anything that he shares in here. I don't like the approach. I don't like the tone. I agree with you that he's a talented writer, probably even a talented storyteller. I think that diminishes value in how many jumps he makes between different things as he's trying to create this intricate web. And I'm projecting there. I understand that, but didn't like this book. <laughs> uh, walking out of it, you know, what did I get out of this book? No action items and really nothing that I jotted down anyways that was like even that's interesting. I'm going to have to really think about that more or that challenges the beliefs that I had in certain areas. There's lots of opportunity here for confirmation bias. If you walk into this with your beliefs and you're looking for something to back it up so you don't have to defend it, you could just point at this. <laughs> but I do not think this is a, a good book. <laughs> uh, have you ever seen the movie Billy? I think it's Billy Madison, the mm, Adam Sandler yeah, one way back in the day. Yeah, you know the end of the movie where he has to describe the Industrial Revolution and he launches into this big story about the little engine that could, you know, and everybody's kind of nodding. And then at the end, the judge goes, I award you no points and we are all dumber for having listened to you. <laughs> That's how I feel with this book. Fair enough. So I'm, I'm actually looking at the Bookworm stats page right now, and I have the ratings for myself in uh, reverse order. Okay. All right. So the lowest rating I have ever given a book, you know which one it was? It was a 2.0, wasn't it? Or 2.5. I don't remember what it is. It was, was, it it was 1.5. Yeah, it was 1.5 for Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Uh, the next one up from that was The Art of Asking by Amanda Palmer at two stars. Okay. And walking out of this 370-page book, I feel like I got about as much out of this one as I got out of that one. So I'm going to put it at two stars. <laughs> You're putting it at two? Yeah. Okay. What did I rate that one? Uh, you rated that one three and a half. Okay. Fair enough. I don't think you're wrong, given that rationale by any means. Okay. <laughs> Great fun. Let's, uh, let's make this one disappear on the shelf. What's next, Mike? 
Next is The Pathless Path by Paul Millard. Uh, I mentioned last time this is actually a uh, Ali Abdal recommendation. And uh, Ali Abdal occasionally will put together these videos of like top 10 books this year, whatever. Every time I watch one of those, he does his little sh uh, short explanations. And I can usually tell right away whether a book is going to resonate with me or not. Uh, I've read a couple of books that he's recommended uh, that I did think resonated with me and been pleasantly surprised each time. So uh, I think this one is going to be good, but we will see. That's why I'm going to make you read it with me. All right. And then following that, I went and looked up my books to read list. It's like, oh yeah, I've had this one on my list for a very long time and I've wanted to read it. Uh, the Almanac of Naval Ravikant. I think that's how you say that. By Eric Jorgensen. Have you seen this one? Heard of this one? Scared of this one? I had not heard about this until you put it in the notes, okay. but I pulled it up. It looks really great, mm -hmm. actually. So there's a, a website where you can actually read the whole thing for free. You can even get the oh. free EPUB or Mobi files if you wanted the digital version. But the uh, the book itself is by Eric Jorgensen and the the forward is by Tim Ferriss. Meh, who cares? That means it's a great book, obviously. No, no. The visuals, though, <laughs> are by, is it Jack Butcher? This is the guy behind, are you familiar with Visualize Value? No, I'm not. Okay, um, so Visualize Value is probably the best entrepreneurial follow on Twitter that I have found. Okay. It's basically all these business principles that he illustrates very simply, and he's got a whole course associated with it that I've actually bought, but he tweets out these images, and I, I don't have an example to, uh, but they're all like very simple, black and white, you know, couple of arrows sort of a thing. So it's simplifying these really complex business topics, and uh, it, it, there's some really great information there. So I've been familiar with Jack Butcher for a while. And the fact that he illustrated this book makes me instantly want to read it. It is very well rated on the Amazon, if I could find my thing. It's 13,426 ratings at the moment. It's a four and a half star book. So that'll tell you something there. Should be good. I'm excited about that one. But yeah, it's been on my list for a long time. How about Gap Books, Mike? Did you manage to slip in another book on top of this one? <laughs> I did not. I've got a couple others that I am probably going to read before next time. Um, so I will probably have a gap book for next time, but not currently. What about you? Yeah, I'm kind of in the same boat. I was struggling to get through this one because I felt like I had to go slow trying to understand his stuff. So maybe I'm not well read enough. So no, I don't have any this time. Maybe next time. All right. That said... Super big thanks to all of you who have joined us live in the chat. If that's ever something you want to do, you need to join the Bookworm Club, club.bookworm.fm, and you'll find the live events. We post them. Actually, when we're done here, I'm going to need to post the next one once we've got a date and time locked in. Uh, so we'll post those uh, two weeks in advance so you'll know when they're happening. You can join us live, join the chat, uh, tell me I'm rating things too highly, which, thanks, Martin. I get that. But uh, the, uh, it, it's super fun to have you guys in the chat with us. So big thanks to all of you who have done that. Also, huge thanks to those of you who have successfully made the transition over to Circle. 
you know, I feel like we need to put some tweets out about that or something. But, uh, you know, the transition to Circle has gone pretty smoothly. And uh, those of you who have managed to get the Bookworm Pro membership moved over, I hope that's been a smooth process. From what I've seen, it seems to go pretty smooth. But we have transferred all of the uh, book notes that Mike had, all the different feeds and stuff. There's the Pro feed that has no ads on it. There's a bootleg feed, which you get immediately after the show recording it includes the pre and post show in it as well completely unedited no promises on quality balances all of that is out the window so <laughs> that's what that is super fun but if you're interested in all of that and you want to join that pro membership pretty simple bookworm.fm slash pro you can still go to the slash membership as well that'll get you there as well just wanted to make it easier thus bookworm.fm slash pro we'd love to have you there uh so the real question you mentioned the sending out some tweets is bookworm on mastodon do we get to send out some toots do you want to be on mass i've asked you this a couple times bookworm is not currently on mastodon <laughs> i don't should care. it be that's the question <laughs> yeah i'm not not sure uh i've tried mastodon it's fine hasn't really clicked for me it's not somewhere i feel like i need to go hang out every day in my so. world it's just another twitter so yeah i i don't it's whatever. I'm on both. The same thing goes to both places. <laughs> All righty. If you are reading along with us, pick up The Pathless Path by Paul Millard, and we'll talk to you in a couple of weeks.